Welcome to Eagle Church. So glad you're here. Welcome to everyone joining us online. A lot of folks traveling this summer, visiting with some before service, a lot of miles covered. Welcome back if you've been on the road. If you're still on the road, thanks for joining us from whatever beach or interstate or traffic backup that you're in uh, right now. Thanks for being a part. Um, If you haven't already pulled out your note sheet, you can raise your hand. And if you didn't get this on the way in the door, the note sheets are back. So um, we're going to print these up each week. They'll be on the tables as you come in the door. Raise your hand if you want. Someone will bring it down the aisle to you. Um, If you didn't get it on the way in, just keep your hand up good. They'll get it to you. And uh, online, your online host can get you connected this way. It'll be helpful for you to to follow along with where we're at in this journey of our series through the Bible. Um, We've we've come to a section in the storyline where we talked about last week. There's a key transition that's occurring Uh, from Samuel to Saul, and from this role of God as the king over his people to the people clamoring for their own king, and we looked at that transition um, last week. So at the top of your note sheet, there's a quote here from Craig Barnes that kind of sets the context with where we're headed with the message today. So follow along with me or up here on the screens. Barnes says this, so much of our week is dominated with a sense of self. Day after day, we are confronted with our dreams, our needs, our sins, our problems, our work, our performance, our health. Well, doesn't it sound like our week right there? Like, when the traffic backs up, we wonder, why are they doing this to us? When a teacher or boss negatively evaluates our work, we wonder how, how, how we could have been so misunderstood when the family asks for more time. We tell them we just don't have any more to give. Then... At last, we come to worship on Sunday morning, and we're confused to hear that it is not all about us. But isn't that actually good news? By the time I make it to church on Sunday, I'm sick and tired of me. I'm tired of my thirst and tired of making the same mistakes over and over in my attempts to satisfy it. I'm more than ready to hear a better story than the one that currently describes my life. Amen? I get it, at least one person over here is saying, you're right. Are we ready for a story that's better than the current one that describes our life? I invite you to worship today to leave the small, brief story of us and enter the grand, epic, eternal story of God. That when the body of Christ comes together on a Sunday morning, we're invited out of this life that's so self-dominated and so self-oriented into a different reference point for living. And what we looked at last week with King Saul, like... Saul was quite satisfied with the small, brief story of himself. Saul, the first king of Israel who started out with so much promise, it seemed like he had like all the ingredients to be an amazing God-centered king for the people. And we looked at how there was this erosion on the inside of his life that occurred somewhere in midlife and picked up steam as he got into his 60s. It was this erosion that we called last week. It was a problem with the frame. And you know where there's an issue with the frame, you really can't fix what's built from it. You've got to tear it down to the core. And Saul 
was unwilling to do that. 1 Samuel 31 records his exit, where he exits, the Philistines are coming in, they've injured him through their archers, he says to his armor bearer, drive a sword through me, I, need, I don't want to give the Philistines the privilege of killing me, you kill me, and the armor bearer refuses, so Saul takes his own sword, drives it through himself, he falls on his own sword and becomes one of the four suicides in the Bible. So Saul exits the story, and I, I kind of summarize the legacy that Saul left as a death by inches. And I think Saul represents, when you're just kind of satisfied with the small, brief story of you, you might be relegated to this legacy of a death by inches. Uh, there's an issue with the frame. And today, Upon Saul's death, we're going to see, now I want you to imagine that there, that there are times in which when one political party is transitioning to another, that it gets complicated and messy. I want you to imagine that, you know, when, when Saul passes away and the second king David steps in, that there's factions and there's a transition of power issues, that there's allegiances that are formed and there are people who are not willing to embrace the new regime who are kind of stuck in this in-between. Just imagine what that would be like if we would understand how political systems transfer and how leadership transfer from Saul to David, and he's thrust, David's thrust into a kingship. Now, picture the circumstances that he's in. The first king of Israel, when the people were clamoring, asking Samuel and God for a king, I don't think they envisioned it was going to go that way, that their first king would end up kind of tanking it to the point where he commits suicide. And the second king steps in, and the Philistines are clamoring and the Babylonians are mounting and eventually the Assyrians are coming and the internal battles within the Israelites, there's factions and disagreements and power struggles. with. There's a lot going on circumstantially, visibly, that could occupy the second king's focus. And what we're going to see today, if, if Saul's legacy was death, death by inches, I entitled today's message what I believe David's legacy was. Redemption through worship. Redemption through worship. And if you want a contrasting summary of these first two kings' lives, I put in your notes, right, there's two one sentences or two one verses. First Samuel 15, 12, we looked at last week. This is Saul. He's gone down to Carmel, and he set up a monument in his own honor. So Saul's better story that he wants to immerse himself in is more Saul. That's his better story. He picks more Saul, builds a monument to himself. And then David, the New Testament summary of David's life, here's Acts 13, 22. Here's the kind of one-verse summary of David. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. There's the contrasting legacies, death by inches, redemption through worship. And so, well, why redemption for David? Well, Last year, we took a long series on the life of David. So if you want to take a deep dive on David's life, go out on eaglechurch.com, go in the message archives, and there's a lengthy series on the life of David, and we took a deep dive on all things David. Today, we're just going to take a high-level kind of a cliff notes summary where David, like Saul, Saul sinned, David sinned. Saul made foolish choices, David made foolish choices. Saul abused his power, David abused his power. Saul had a bunch of stuff that was out of whack. David had, I mean, David's resume was not squeaky clean. 
But there's a redemption aspect. Here's the core difference, though. Somewhere along the way, the issue with Saul's frame contrasted with the frame and the center point of David's life. It's not that David was perfect. It's not that he did everything right. It was a responsiveness to God in the midst of his everyday struggles and battles. And you see the difference of the frame. You say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that David went down such a different road than Saul? Well, we've got the book of Psalms that a couple hundred, 250 of us have been reading through the Bible this year. And what have we been reading in, gang, this last couple weeks, right? We've been in the Psalms. And you know, 75 of the 150 Psalms are written by this king, King David. 75 of them. Half of the book of Psalms. And they're windows in to the stuff that matters the most in David's life. The book of Psalms gives you a window into like what shaped his heart, what set his priorities, what oriented like his values. This is the book of Psalms. You get a window into it. Saul's down in Carmel building a monument to himself. David's authoring half of the book of Psalms. That's the difference between death by inches and redemption through worship. And I don't know about you, how much of training in our own personal worship has this man David had? The one person who's impacted my prayer life more than anybody else is King David. His psalms are mainly prayers and songs and poems. No one's taught me how to pray like David has taught me how to pray. A man who had plenty of blemishes on his resume, but there was something set right in his frame that God would say, I see this man, he's after my own heart, he's done everything I've asked him to do. Certainly not perfectly. There were consequences for his actions. He was accountable for his behavior, but there was, a, there was kind of a compass in his life that was set true north. And today we're going to look at just one of the Psalms, Psalm 103. If you haven't opened up your Bibles there, Psalm 103 is where we'll be today. And I want us to look at what I'm calling David's soul sight in Psalm 103. And the bridge into our lives today is that perhaps like David's finding, that our sin issues, our marriage issues, our family issues, our money issues, our career issues, our ministry issues are really at their core a worship issue. If we get the monument issue settled, the rest of the things sort their way out. If you don't get it settled, you kind of are relegated to the pathway of Saul. Really, the decision on the monument dictates, are you going the way of Saul or am I going the way of David with this? So look at Psalm 103. Here's how he starts this psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Circle that in your Bibles. Who forgives all your sins? Circle that. And heals all your diseases. You think David's trying to communicate something? And all-encompassing, completely covering. Who redeem, Verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So, do you see how the eyes of David's heart, do you see how they're not like overwhelmed and fixated on the circumstances that would have been clamoring for his attention. He's not just, he's not focused on the Philistines. He's not focused on the mess that the nation of Israel is. He's not focused on the, all the stuff that Saul kind of handed him. And that He's not focused on all the things that could easily have got his attention. 
There's this gaze of David's, I'm calling it a soul sight. He sets the gaze of his heart on the glory and the splendor and the majesty of all that God is. He's captivated by God in the midst of his circumstance. It doesn't mean his circumstances went away. It's just who he is in them. That's the difference here. That David is like, he's swept up with this vision of just in those first five verses, right? I put in your notes, this vision of a God who forgives all his sins and heals all his diseases, who redeems his life from the pit and crowns him with love and compassion, who's renewing his strength like the eagle's wings. And and he goes on to say in verse 6, the God who's righteous and just, in verse 8, he's slow to anger and abounding in love. In verse 17, he's infinitely faithful. In verse 19, he's sovereign. He's reigning and ruling over all. Oh, church, David says, I wish I could describe him to you. Do you just see how he just captivates that this is our God? He's amazing. He's unbelievable. He swept up my life into his grand, epic, eternal story. The frame of David's life is set Godward at its core. And listen to how Louis Giglio, I put this quote in your notes. Here's how Louis summarizes. He's a pastor down in Atlanta. He says, infinite means having no limits, never running out, having no end, existing forever, unbound, timeless. God has never been tired, never slept, never aged, never upgraded. He's self-sufficient, self-contained. God doesn't need anything or anybody. God's greatness doesn't depend on us. If not one single person on earth ever chose to to respond to Him in love, believing in Him and worshiping Him, God would still be all that He already is, always has been, and always will be. That's our God, church. And this God, hear this now, this God is so big in David's eyes, there's only one giant in David's life. That giant is not Goliath, that giant is not Saul, That giant is not the Philistines. That giant is not the Israelite nation's mess. There's only one giant in David's life. And that giant being God is so big in David's eyes that the rightful response can only be Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my most being. Praise His holy name. (laughs) See, when God gets bigger in our eyes, church, then there's an instinct that kicks in. God's made us this way. There's this something in our Imago day, in our image of God. We're stamped with this. And if you're born again in Christ, the Holy Spirit within you, there's something inside of you that says, when you get clearer on how great God is, there's an instinct that kicks in that says, the appropriate response is worship. It's not just, it's not just kind of a tip of the hat to God. It's not tossing a little money in the offering to God. It's, it's, it's worship at its core. And do you see the distinctive difference here? Like Saul, Saul's life was framed primarily around Saul. It's not that God wasn't a part of his life. God just wasn't big enough in Saul's eyes. Saul was, it was a monument to Saul. And David's authoring half the book of Psalms. That gives you a picture of how big God is in the eyes of these two. One building a monument to self, the other saying, my life's going to be about response to the greatness of God. And church, implications for us today are, I want us to think about like our response to a call to worship or even 
you know, when the calendar rolls around on Saturday night and we begin to think about Sunday morning, we begin to think about gathering together in worship, whether you're online with us or in person with us, this idea that we have this privilege, we're invited in. Psalm 65 says, praise awaits you, O God in Zion. And is there something inside of us where, is, is worship just a something like, I, I ought to do? Or is, is worship moved to this place where I think it's with David, like, I have to worship. Like there's something inside of me that says, in light of the splendor and majesty and glory of all that God is for us in Jesus, in light of who He is and all that He's done, I've got Psalm 103 pent up inside of me all week long. I can't wait to get together with the body of Christ and let the worship team gather and let the body gather and let them express through lyrics and song and community and the spoken word that there's this praise awaiting you. I praise you with my inmost being because you forgive our sins and you heal our diseases and you redeem our life from the pit and you crown us with glory and, and there's no one like our God. And I think the bigger God gets in our eyes, the more worship moves to this place like, I have to. It's not like a, an add-on in the midst of my week. It's not an add-on in the midst of my day. This is like the center point of day. It's supposed to be the center point of a follower of Jesus is my life is framed in a worship of God. The alternative is we find ourselves building monuments to ourselves. Did you know what the basic unit of measurement is of the universe? Hey, students, I'm taking you back now, seventh grade science class, right? The basic measurement they use to, to, to track the distance in the universe is called a light year. Do you know that light travels at 186,000 miles a second? So in the time I snap my fingers... Light circled the globe six times, six times. So I, I, I put in your notes just, just a little summary. So in one day, light travels 160 billion miles, one day, 160 billion miles. In one year, hear this, 5,865,696,000,000 miles. That's one light year, one light year. So here's what scientists today, now this, I would, it'd be a stretch to say estimate, I will call it a guesstimate. How do the science, guesstimate the outer edges of the universe. Their best guesstimate is 15.5 billion light years. Your head can't even wrap around, right? It's just unimaginable, right? It's incomprehensible. Now hold that with David's words here in verse 11, Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Church, here's my translation of those uh, verses. I want you to bring to remembrance the greatest expression of love you've experienced in your life. Hold that front burner in your mind for a moment, and here's what David says. God's love for you and Jesus is 15.5 billion light years beyond that. Or I want you to think about your deepest valley and your darkest sin, like the deepest valley of your sin. And David says, 
Hey, no matter how deep that valley, God's grace is 15.5 billion light years deeper than that. That's our God. And David just ransacks language to try to communicate the love of God and the grace of God and the glory of God and the splendor of God. Like the frame of his life is so big in David's eyes, which is why he says in another psalm, Psalm 145, he kind of comes to the end of his vocabulary when he's trying to describe it. Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. That's David's way of saying it's 15.5 billion light years beyond what I can grasp. Yes, that's the greatness and the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the love and the grace of our God. And when that gets a little bit bigger in our hearts, gets the gaze of our soul set on that, there's an instinct inside of us. I got to bow in worship. Which he comes to in verse 19, Psalm 103, David says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So David, God's so big in his eyes, here's what David's anchoring himself in because there's a lot of kingdoms in David's time vying for position, which by the way, if you were to, you know, just be placing some bets on who's going to kind of get the upper hand. You wouldn't have put your money on the Israelites in the storyline. There were a lot bigger nations, more powerful kingdoms, bigger armies, all the stuff surrounding David. You'd be like, I don't see how this guy in this group's going to survive. And David says, yeah, but here's what I have. I'm anchored to a God whose kingdom rules over, what's that repeated word all through this psalm? All. David's like, yeah, but my God's kingdom is, is ruling over the Babylonians, over the Philistines, over the Assyrians, over the Romans, and even today, over the Americans, over the Republicans and the Democrats. Oh boy, got a little quiet there, didn't it? That God's kingdom rules over all, over all power, all dominion, Every principality that's been set up, that there's a sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who when he decrees something, it just gets done. Do you know when you're sovereign, you don't have to shout? You don't have to shout. He decrees it and that settles it. You don't debate it. You don't vote on it. You don't, count, you don't get to cancel it. God decrees it. That settles it. David says, yeah, by the way, I'm anchored to this God. This is my God. So it doesn't matter what the Philistines are yapping about. It doesn't matter how broken the sense the Israelite camp is about. It doesn't matter what the Assyrians are mounting to do. Here's what's mattering to him. This God reigns and rules. He's capital S sovereign. He's Lord, capital L, over all those other small lords. He's Lord. He's King, capital K, over all those other small kings. This is my God. I'll stay anchored to him. And so when I can't figure out what my visible reality is saying, which probably an appropriate word for us today, right, church? In the setting we're in, in the environment we're in, in the stuff we've been living through as a nation over the past 18 months, you say, what's going on? It seems like everything's so out of control and everything's unraveling. David says, those circumstances are all still real, very important, but who are we as the people of God in the middle of them? 
That are we going to be anchored to this God? Is God going to become bigger in our eyes so it frames the circumstances that we live in? That's the ticket, right? The bigger God gets in our eyes, the more it doesn't change necessarily what the circumstances are. It changes how we see them, how we live in them, how we navigate them. And that's for David. He's like, I'm just going to stay anchored there. He said, my soul sight is set there. I like what John Piper says about this. I put this quote in your notes as well. Piper says, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. If you turn your back, hear this, on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Hmm. You see, church, I think Saul settled for life in the shadows, and his legacy became death by inches. And David was swept up with the glory and majesty of God, and his legacy became redemption through worship. That's why Saul's caught building a monument to himself, and David's writing half of the book of Psalms. When God is too small in our eyes, we're kind of relegated to life in the shadows, building a monument to ourselves. But if we can follow David's lead here and say, no matter what circumstances we may be thrust in, there is a God who is bigger still. And when we get our eyes captivated upon Him, see, worship is our response to God's greatness. And if our worship quotients maybe been lagging a little bit, it probably has to do with a vision issue of the heart. The eyes of the heart might have been kind of overcome or overwhelmed with maybe visible reality, everyday life circumstances kind of crowding out. And maybe part of Sunday mornings as we gather, right, and we get together with the body and we open His Word and we sing songs, there's just kind of a, a fog that lifts that's maybe settled around the eyes of our soul and the fog lifts and we get a little more clear and a little more centered like this is our God. He's the God who is worthy of praise. He forgives our sins and heals our diseases and He crowns us with love and compassion. He redeems our life from the pit. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. His kingdom has no end. He reigns and rules sovereignly over all. He's infinite. He is who He is. He ha he, who He has been, who He is today, who He will be forever. He's fixed, stable, eternal. This is our God. And the clearer this God gets in our eyes, the more an instinct, I think, kicks in. Worship. And so team, why don't you come on back up. This worship team's going to come. I'm going to wrap this up by reading where David wrapped up the psalm. This is when God got big enough in his eyes. You can't, you can't really wrap up a psalm other than like what David does here. Pray, verse 20, praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, you His servants who do His will. Verse 22, praise the Lord, all His works everywhere in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 
And so, church today is a call to life beyond the shadows. It's a call to step step outside the shadows and maybe let the fog lift a little bit and let the gaze of our soul turn Godward. Let God's supremacy and glory and majesty just get a little bit clearer in our eyes. And we respond in worship. It's not just through song, though song is important. We appreciate lyrics and melodies who help us. We appreciate words put to song that kind of just help in that space, but that's not the only way. And for some of you, that's your primary way, and that's great, and that's what the team's going to lead us in the next few minutes. But my encouragement to you is to do a little monument examination over the next several minutes and say, Lord, am I going the way of Saul? I mean, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? Is it going to just be building a, some kind of monument to self? And No, I'm not perfect. Got things to sort out. Or, or am I going to go the way of David? Could, could redemption get the last word? In the midst of my mistakes, in the midst of my failures, the mix of things that fall on my face, could, redemption through worship. David says it's possible. The New Testament's commentary on like the exit of David's life says he fulfilled God's purpose in his generation and then he died. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing said of our lives? Archbishop William Temple, I close with this quote. Here's how he kind of helped, for me it helps define and kind of broaden my definition of worship lest we shrink it and relegate it just to kind of musical response, that worship is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. That's worship. And so for the next few minutes, you respond as you feel led to respond in worship. What's the posture of worship you sense the Spirit calling forth from you today? The prayer benches are open here at the front. You maybe want to come and kneel. That might be a posture of worship for you. Come and kneel and have some space with the Lord there. Stand if you want to stand. Sit if you want to sit. Sing with arms extended if you want. Sit quietly in silence. You worship in a posture that is worthy of this great God that has saved us and redeemed us in Jesus and took David's life and said, I'm not done with you yet. Redemption through worship is going to get the last word, David. It's possible for him. It's possible for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the invitation to come. We agree with Psalm 65 now. We say, praise await you, O God in Zion. By your Spirit, call it forth from our inmost being. Would you get a little bit bigger in our eyes over these next few minutes? Help us to see a little more clearly who you are and how great you are. We offer you our worship in Jesus' name.